Gary and Rose stood back to back in the center of the pitch black room. Each had an axe gripped in their bloody hands, and each one was nearly suffocating in an attempt to silence their heavy breathing. Their backs were stuck together with clothing that was soaked through by blood and sweat and rain. Gary's eyes remained trained on the window at the back of the room. The window was open to the cool, wet autumn air outside, and the breeze caused the thin curtain to dance like a ghost, a Halloween ghost. There had been no time to bar the window in any way without making too much noise, and keeping it open at least left them an easy escape if the things came through the door. Rose nudged Gary with her shoulder, and he twisted around to see her. She nodded toward the window. Gary stepped slowly and carefully over to the window, not wanting a creaking floorboard to give away their presence. Rose kept her eyes on the door. They had locked it, but it certainly wouldn't stop them, whatever the fuck these things were. One of them had taken at least five rounds from Bennett's three fifty-seven, and one of those shots had hit the thing square in the throat, but the fucking thing didn't go down. Or bleed. A sort of pale, wet mulch rolled out of the wounds like cold grits. That was when everyone who was still sitting there had started running. The guy had wandered up out of the woods behind Bennett's house to the fire on the deck. Most of the neighborhood's twenty-somethings and cool types had gathered in Bennett's yard on account of the citywide blackout which canceled the Alice Cooper show and the fact that Bennett had a huge covered deck off the back of his house with a fire pit and a well-stocked beer fridge. At first everyone had thought he was just some guy fucking around. Some dude in a maniac costume with a baseball bat out pranking people on Halloween. Bennett was drunk as hell, and he stood up and pointed his three fifty-seven at the guy as the guy stepped up onto the deck and out of the rain. Wrong fucking yard, man. Fuck off with that shit, Bennett said. The guy jerked his head to one side like an extreme nervous tick, and a few big fat beetles flew off of his head and landed on Jan, the Canadian girl. The guy just stared at Bennett. He was huge covered in wet, rotten cloth, but he was just far enough from the firelight when Bennett stopped him that no one could make out his face. Easy, Bennett. Put the fucking gun down, dude, someone said. That was when the thing hit Derek in the head with the bat so hard that Derek's head fucking exploded like a ripe watermelon. Everyone screamed. Bennett started shooting. The thing didn't even shrug as the bullets tore it open, and it spilled forth chunky, rotten gore the color of mayonnaise. As everyone scattered across the covered deck, the thing caught Becky with a backhanded swing of its bat that caved in her side and pierced her lungs with her own broken ribs. Becky fell to the ground convulsing and choking to death as her own blood flooded her shredded lungs. Becky's husband, Howard, grabbed the thing by its shoulder, presumably to make some kind of attack against it, but the thing spun around and grabbed Howard by his throat, then lifted Howard into the air with one arm before choke slamming him into the fire pit so hard that coals exploded out in every direction like a volcanic eruption. Howard never moved from where he landed in the fire pit, just sizzled and popped as he began to burn. Bennett, Gary, and Rose were the only ones still standing near the fire pit. The rest of the partiers were jammed against Bennett's sliding glass door, trying to force their way into his house en masse. Some twenty people, all fighting desperately to get through the three-foot opening at once and failing. Bennett charged toward the thing with his hands out in a grappler's position, and the thing swung its bat and shattered both of Bennett's arms. Bennett began to howl, flailing the broken remnants of his arms as the thing came down on top of him with an overhead swing that buried the bat down to Bennett's fucking teeth. The bat snapped off at the handle, and as the thing began to use the pointed, broken handle as a knife, skewering Bennett's corpse over and over, Gary and Rose ran for the patio door. 
The 20 or so partiers were still jammed up in the door, and as Gary and Rose reached the group, Gary shoved hard on the back of the small crowd. Fucking move! It's coming! Gary screamed. A few of them twisted around and could see the thing standing up from where it knelt over Bennett's ruined corpse. It began to walk toward the back porch, still holding the broken bat handle, dripping with gore. The crowd surged through the sliding glass doorway again, and a few people up front screamed as they were forced through the door finally and flat onto their faces inside the dark house. The rest of the crowd came charging through the open doorway, trampling those that were pushed down onto the floor. Gary stepped on someone's hand and could feel the bones of the fingers crunching and snapping under his heel as he kept moving, finally through the doorway and into the house, with Rose right behind him. The crowd all headed for Bennett's front door, jamming themselves up once again as whoever was at the front fumbled with the door. Gary and Rose paused at the back of the group, not wanting to get stuck again. Rose glanced back and saw the thing coming through the back door with the deadly broken bat handle. Then she noticed Bennett's fire axis on the wall, gleaming in the dim firelight from the back deck. They were some sort of award or commemoration from Bennett's buddies at the fire department, but real steel and sharp-looking. She grabbed them both off the wall and handed one to Gary as they exchanged a look in the dark. They had just met tonight and didn't even know each other's names, but something passed between them now. They were two of a kind, wolves among sheep. Rose had seen the back patch that Gary wore, a wolf skull with crossed bones. She recognized this patch. Gary took the axe from Rose as the thing drew closer. They could smell it now. It smelled like a combination of wet, dark earth and rotting meat. Just two paces away now, the thing raised its bloody bat handle to strike. When Rose sprang forward with her axe over her head, she brought it down in a blur of motion, and one of the thing's arms hit the floor with a wet thump, still clutching the bat in its black, slimy hand. Less than a second after, Gary had chopped the thing's other arm off and buried his axe halfway into the thing's chest. The thing went down, and as Gary struggled to tear his axe free, the thing began snapping at Gary's face with its black teeth. Out of dumb reflex, Gary threw up his right hand to shield his face, and the thing's teeth snapped shut around Gary's wrist. Still gripping the axe in his left hand, he threw a hard left cross at the thing's head and buried his fist and the axe handle in the thing's cold, slimy head as its skull ruptured, pouring writhing maggots all over Gary's hand. The thing's jaws let go of Gary's wrist, leaving a bloody, torn wound, and Gary kicked it in the chest, knocking it down to the floor. Gary shook the maggots from his left hand and gripped the axe tight in both hands again. As Gary and Rose watched the thing struggle to get back on its feet with no arms, the crowd at the front of the house started screaming. Gary and Rose stepped into the hallway to see the front door standing open and another thing like the one with the bat blocking the way out. This one was smaller, but still featureless in the dark and stinking of wet rot. It had a garden trowel in its hand, already dripping red, and one guy was down on the floor in an unmoving heap. Another one? Rose said. Then the second thing chopped at poor Steve from Florida's neck so hard with the dull garden trowel that Steve's neck exploded in a shower of blood, spraying almost the entire hallway in crimson. Steve barked like a seal and keeled over instantly, bubbling and gurgling his last breaths through his ruined throat. Everyone in the hall started clambering toward the back of the house again, and the second thing followed walking with murder in its step. The armless thing was back on its feet now, having propped itself up in a corner. Gary looked at Rose, and Rose ran for the back door. Gary followed. They ran across Bennett's covered deck, jumping over Becky and Bennett where they lay on the cold boards. They ran out into the backyard in the rain. Bennett had a wooden fence separating his yard from his neighbors on the left and the right, 
but the fence was open where it ran all the way down to a patch of woods. They were heading toward the woods when a figure stepped from the trees and into Bennett's backyard. It was a woman, or something that used to be. It wore a rotting, wet dress, and its face hung from its skull like a loose, wet shroud, dangling low around its neck. Its slimy skull gleamed in the moonlight, and pale bugs crawled in the slime. The empty holes where its eyes once were seemed like hate-filled pits. Without hesitation, Rose grabbed the fence and heaved herself over the top. Gary saw the thing with the garden trowel and the one with no arms emerging from the house just behind two frantic survivors right before he climbed over the fence to join Rose on the other side. Landing in the wet grass on the other side of the fence, Gary could see Rose staring intently through the rain into the dark windows of the house there, gripping her axe tightly. Then he heard the scream from inside the house, just barely audible over the rain. Let's go. Now, Rose said. Gary jumped to his feet and the two of them set off across the backyard and around the side of the house, through a narrow walkway toward the street. Out on the street, they could hear the faint sounds of glass breaking and random screams all over the blackened neighborhood, muffled by the falling rain. The only lights were the jack-o'-lanterns on porches and the candlelight from within the darkened homes. They saw three kids in ghost costumes, running with mad abandon up the wet street, trailing soaked white sheets behind them as they ran, never looking back. What the fuck is going on? Gary asked. You got wheels? Rose asked without answering. No, Bennett picked me up from work after they canceled Cooper. Gary replied. You got anybody you could call? Rose asked. Not really. I'm new in town, Gary said. I can call my brothers. They're banditos, Rose said. The MC banditos? Gary asked. Yeah, Rose replied and started walking toward a big two-story house across the street with a for-sale sign out front. Gary followed, and as they walked, Rose set her shoulders and rolled her neck like a boxer. As they crossed the front yard of the big two-story house, three dark figures walked around the corner of the house, coming from the backyard, all clutching huge shards of broken glass in their oozing black hands. The things began walking swiftly towards Rose and Gary. Rose and Gary kicked into a run, charging up the front steps of the house and across the huge porch. Rose reached the door first, and when she found it locked, she reared back and kicked the door so hard it shattered the frame and nearly tore the door off its hinges. A shocked, middle-aged couple stared at them from inside the gaping doorway. Gary looked over his shoulder and saw the three things with the broken glass in their hands had reached the bottom of the steps that led up to the porch. He willed himself to step over to the top of the stairs, ready to swing down at the thing's slimy, faceless heads as soon as they got within reach of his axe. The hell are you doing, young lady? You can't... The guy in the house started to say, but that's all he got out before Rose slammed the butt of the axe handle into the guy's face and kicked him in the nuts. Oh, the guy said as he went down, blood gushing from his busted nose. The wife knelt down over the husband, mumbling about something, but Rose kicked her aside and charged into the house. Gary followed, and as the three things began to cross the porch, he stepped into the house and slammed the door back into place. Rose had already pushed a heavy, antique love seat halfway across the entrance room toward the door and Gary stepped aside as she jammed the heavy piece of furniture against the door. As the three things began pushing, the husband popped up from the floor with a knife and slashed Rose across the arm. Gary came down hard on the husband's head with a downward kick, and after husband's head bounced off the hardwood floor with a wet crack, he didn't get up again. What do you people want? What's going on? The wife whimpered. We didn't think anybody was home. There's a for sale sign out front. We need to use the phone, Rose said. The wife just stared like an idiot. Rose nodded toward the door and headed off toward the kitchen with her zippo held aloft like a lantern in the cavernous house. Gary put his weight against the antique love seat that was jammed against the front door and waited. 
He heard Rose pick up a phone and start cranking the dial. Seconds later, she spoke quickly, and in Spanish, then hung up the phone. Gary didn't speak enough Spanish to catch what she said. The three things on the porch began pushing, hard. They were strong. My brothers are coming, Rose said, emerging from the blackness with her lighter. Rose nodded to Gary and began to head up the huge staircase and into the utter blackness of the house. Gary followed. One of the three things on the porch got an arm inside the door and slowly started working leverage to get the heavy chair pushed aside. The wife sat on the floor near her husband and cried. Upstairs, Rose and Gary found six bedrooms and a library. They locked the doors to all of them, but stepped inside a guest bedroom with an open window, letting the cool night air in. Maybe they won't find us if we stay quiet, Rose said. Downstairs, the wife began to scream, but only briefly. Elsewhere in the neighborhood, just under the sound of the rain, there were other screams. Gary stepped slowly and carefully over to the window, not wanting a creaking floorboard to give away their presence. Rose kept her eyes on the door. Outside, screams and gunfire mingled with the roaring of car engines up and down the street. It sounded like absolute chaos out there. Rose hoped that Gary would look out the window and see her brothers coming, but she knew that she hadn't heard their bikes coming up the street. Then again, maybe they were smart and brought the truck. Gary let out a tiny chuckle from behind Rose. Startled that he would break their silence like that, Rose turned around and raised an eyebrow at him. Gary looked back at Rose with a grave expression, sucking his bottom lip, and motioned for her to come over to the window. Rose walked slowly and carefully over to the window and looked out through the gossamer curtain. Across a small, vacant lot that stood directly behind the house, a massive cemetery stretched out into the darkness, the tombstones wet and gleaming in the moonlight. Trudging across the cemetery grounds were twenty or thirty of the things. Then lightning cracked overhead, and they could see the whole cemetery for a brief instant. There were hundreds of the things out there, and more were hauling themselves out of the wet ground. Rose let out a chuckle herself and looked at Gary. We'll make them pay fucking dearly for it before they send us to hell tonight, Rose said, smiling. You so sure I'm going to hell too? Gary said. A devil recognizes their own, Rose said. As she pulled Gary close and kissed him hard, the things began clawing at the door. Via con diablos, Gary said, and kissed her back.
Halloween, everybody. Heather Melton of the Lurking News here to report that there's some bad candy going around out there. Apparently, children are growing extra mouths and reciting the second act of the King and Yellow. Hello and welcome once again to the Howard Phillips Lovecraft Radio Theater. Tonight we bring you an adaptation of Mr. Lovecraft's classic tale, The Festival, by a phantasmagorical group of musical gents from far off Finland by the name of Swamp Cult. The Howard Phillips Lovecraft Radio Theater is proud to present Swamp Cult's The Right. Oh, my God. 
down to the Mutilation Mansion, Detroit's finest house of horror. Thirteen floors of darkness and death, home of the legendary Acid Witch herself, the site of 332 deaths and 665 disappearances since 1984. The morning mist be a shroud, for the shadows clear and dying. But underneath the morning mist, you'll find them dead and lying. From the Morning After the Night of the Dead by Fjorn, the Bard of Augusta, Georgia. No one spoke. They stood on the street and stared in, some holding their noses. Poor Edol was on his hands and knees in the alley, retching up the once delicious hotcakes that he had broken fast with earlier in the morning. He was wet with crimson gore and steamed in the cold. Tears streamed down his face as he spit and coughed. Blood dripped from his iron cap onto his face as he coughed and spat, and he snatched the cap from his head and tossed it aside in the alley. The warmth of the low-burning fire inside the small row house pushed the smell of the place out into the cold morning air. It hung everywhere in ribbons and sat everywhere in lumps. It, him, what was once him, a man named Ferrin. The old man who lived next door had told the irons that. The young woman who lived across the street had told the irons that he was a kind young man, this Ferrin, hard-working and honest. The thing was done, and there was no need to send for an inquisitor. It was plain enough, the thing that had happened. It was there for everyone to see and see well, and when the old man from next door had finished telling what he had heard and saw, no one questioned. There were no questions. None with answers. The woman was sprawled near the door to the small row house, Ferrin's house. Her head was knocked in, and the iron-shod club that Edel had used to knock it in was still lying beside her. As well as having her head knocked in, she was missing her ears, most of her nose, her lips, and her hair. Along with her hair, patches of her scalp were gone as well. Her dress, once modest but pretty green, was thoroughly soaked in her blood and had turned an unappealing wet brown. Her fingers were stripped of the flesh and the ragged, sharp ends of her finger bones were protruding like talons. From these gnarled talons of bone hung dark strips of flesh and innards. Rank, glistening organs and lumps of flesh and sinew and bloody hair and bones were flung everywhere. It was as if this young man Ferrin had been chewed and spewed by a dragon in his own home. The only recognizable part of the mess was the man's head, stripped of all flesh but still attached to the spinal column. This arrangement was hanging from the support beams overhead in a small row house. Inverted, the skull swinging slowly and subtly at the end of the hanging spinal column, 
the gaping red hole staring just as well as any horrified eyes. The spinal column was anchored into the support beam with a slender cooking knife. They had found bits of flesh on the street leading to Ferrin's house, and the trail of blood. The early morning ravens were already making off with the tasty little morsels. No one kept the birds from their feast. Adol had been the first to arrive. He had shouldered his way into the house, and the maimed, bloody horror of a woman inside had flown at him, screeching and clawing like a hellcat with heat madness. It was over quickly. The two irons and the old man stood on the street and looked through the open door into the small row house. No one spoke. No one had spoken since the old man had told the irons what he saw and heard the night before. The night of Suwen. The night of the dead. She came stumbling down the street, cutting at herself and mumbling. I could see her cutting and pulling and bleeding something terrible. She moaned. She stopped at young Ferrin's door and, and began carving the ends of her fingers with a knife. I walked over to try to help her, foolish old man that I am, and she growled at me as a beast. I backed away, but she swiped at me with the knife and spat blood onto the street. The blood streamed in the cold, and in the rising steam I saw it, cold and ugly, the shining dark thing that coiled inside of her. As I stumbled backward, Farron opened his door, and she fell on him instantly. The door shut behind the two of them. I heard her screaming, roaring that she loved him. She kept screaming that she loved him in the most chilling voice. It sounded as ice when it shifts and creaks and hisses and pops in late winter. But it was hateful. So hateful. Ferrin began to scream and the sound of him screaming drove me into my house. I barred the door and burned a candle in my jack-o'-lantern until dawn. I still could hear her ripping and tearing over there, tossing the wet chunks about. At first light, I ventured out to find a watchman. Your man at all is the first one I found. Oh, but the night of Soen brings such ghastliness. Oh, all right, kids. Come on, get around in here. Let's get inside. Listen up. Yes. Yeah, you, stop fucking around. Listen to the witch, man. She's got some rules for you, all right?
candy is definitely getting around, y'all. There's a bunch of kids with extra mouths standing outside the studio right now. And they look hungry. The Lurking Transmission is created, produced, directed, and engineered by Evan Dean Shelton. The first tale, Lights Out, Halloween 1980, was written and performed by Evan Dean Shelton. The first song was Half Past Midnight by Slasher Dave. The second tale and the second song was The Right by Swamp Cult. This is but a piece of Swamp Cult's album, The Festival, which adapts the Lovecraft story of the same name in its entirety. We highly recommend this album. The third tale, The Morning After, was written by Evan Dean Shelton and performed by Kit Goyena. This story is from the Lover's Hill series, which you can find the rest of at loversHill.com. The third song was Mutilation Mansion by Acid Witch. The voice of the lurking news is Heather Melton. Everything you hear within the space of the lurking transmission is protected by copyright law, but we here at the lurking transmission are outlaws and black magicians, therefore we don't rely on the law. If you fuck with us, we'll fuck with you. While we have your attention, dear receiver, we'd like to point you towards a podcast called Archive 81. Archive 81 is a full-cast, serialized audio drama, a wonderfully sick and twisted work of weird horror, like David Lynch meets David Cronenberg meets Lovecraft, but with action. Lots of action. Check out Archive 81. Until next time, happy Halloween and Merry Samhain to you. And remember, sorrow is armor. Polish it and strap it on. You're going to need it. Stay tuned, dear receiver, for the lurking transmission will return.